You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience. We're re-airing an episode today from a little over a year ago. It's summer at West Point, and our team is out pursuing research, training cadets, and spending time recharging. We're also reflecting on the role MWI and our content, The Spear included, play in developing, training, and educating the combined and joint force. Between machine gun ranges, land navigation, and time spent writing and reflecting, Our mission at MWI is ultimately to generate new knowledge for the profession of arms, enhance the West Point curriculum, and provide the Army and the nation with an intellectual resource for solving military problems. We decided to re-air this episode as it, in many ways, is indicative of the stressors placed on young lieutenants preparing to go to war and then finding themselves in combat. I think Carl Blanke's interactions and story about this Marine, whom he calls Lance Corporal Jackson, goes a long way to meet MWI's mission objectives. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this episode of The Spear. I'm your host, Tim Heck, coming to you from the Modern War Institute at West Point. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Carl Blanke, a former Marine infantry officer, who's going to recount his time as a weapons platoon commander during the evasion of Iraq in 2003. Carl, thanks for agreeing to come on The Spear and tell your story. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Carl Blanke. Born and raised in Southern California. Uh, did my undergrad at University of Oklahoma. And then I was pretty late getting to the Marine Corps. It was it had always been on my radar since high school. Um, I, I spent a couple of years in a junior ROTC unit in high school, fell in love with the Marine Corps then, but you know, got married, started having kids and kept pushing off the Marine Corps. So I was a late starter. I uh, went to OCS in, in, as a 27-year-old, not the preferred method, uh, but in any, any uh, way ended up uh, getting an infantry slot uh, out of the basic school. And um, then my first infantry battalion, I was assigned to 1-5 back in, in what I consider my hometown uh, of Southern California at Camp Pendleton. Okay, so you're at 1st Battalion, 5th Marines as a rifle platoon commander? It was actually a weapons platoon commander uh, at the time that we're going to talk about, which is uh, kind of late 2002 through early 2003. Uh, so you've had your line rifle time already. So That's exactly right. Checked into the battalion, had a rifle platoon uh, for about a year, uh, and then was moved over to the weapons platoon uh, in 2002. Pre-moving to weapons, right? So it's 2000, and, 2000 2001. 
Did you go on any deployments? Did you do any big training exercises or was this peacetime Marine Corps pre-war on terror? Yeah. So the, yeah, I check in the battalion in the summer of 2001. It's pre 9-11. The battalion had just come back off deployment. Um, so the battalion is decimated by PCS and end of enlistment and, and all of those things. And um, so the first few months w- were quiet for the battalion, which turned out to be a huge benefit for me. I got sent off uh, up to 29 Palms to assist the coyotes that run what was then called CACS, what we today call ITX, uh, Integrated Training Exercise. A bunch of very experienced infantry officers, and I was just a, a new lieutenant learning under them, running exercises, and learned an incredible amount uh, in that time period. And then w- once we, you know, I did that for a couple months, um, came back to the battalion, we started to get our backfills, right? Our new Marines, either PCSing or, or fresh enlistments uh, right out of the School of Infantry. And uh, we started to get to train as, as a whole unit. Uh, we got to go to the Marine Corps' WTI program out in Yuma, Arizona. It's a very aviation-centered exercise, but there's one rifle company that's a part of that exercise every time. Incredible exercise um, for us, three weeks of uh, helo raids nonstop, uh, all live fire. And then from there, we, we actually got to do our, once our battalion was full up and we had trained for a while, we got to do CACs together. And that was late 2002. Uh, so we were, we hadn't done any deployments yet. We'd done an incredible amount of training and we were getting ready to go out the door in December 2002 as the um, BLT for the 31st Mew. All right. So the BLT is the battalion landing team. You are the focus of the combat power for the Marine Expeditionary Unit. That's exactly right. You were planning on going, sitting on a ship, floating around for six months, waiting to be crisis response in somewhere in the Pacific? Correct. Yeah. All, all of the stuff that we were sort of planning and training for was going to be in and around the Philippines. That was our main focus. You know, by this point, it's now post 9-11. Uh, there's a lot of focus on Muslim extremist groups, and there are a number of those in and around the Philippines. So that was really the focus of our training uh, as we were getting ready to serve as the BLT for the 31st Mew. And so was that training counterinsurgency? Was that training low intensity conflict or was it full up mech warfare, large scale, what we would call large scale combat operations today? Yeah, it was definitely low intensity conflict. It was really focused on those company sized raids that the Marine Expeditionary Units are sort of classically known for. That was the focus. What it was ultimately going to look like would have, you know, we, we had several potential operations on the table. Uh, that we were training for several contingencies. And most of those would have been company reinforced type operations, obviously supported by the MU. So those bring a lot of firepower uh, coming with the aviation and whatnot. But that was the focus. It was really, it would definitely fall into the category of low intensity conflict. Obviously, we had trained for many other things, right? We had just done combined arms exercise, which is the Marine Corps' really crowning exercise for large-scale conventional combat operations in the open desert, right? That's been part of the Marine Corps' playbook for decades prior to 9-11. So we, had, we were training both low-intensity conflict. That was sort of our focus for the MU, but we were still doing the traditional conventional open ground warfare training at the same time. You know, you come into the Marine Corps late. You've got thus a world of life experience under you. You have three kids at the time, if I remember. That's exactly right. All right, so you got your three kids. A wife, you've got a lot of experience and you're interacting with 18, 19 year old kids. You're, you're probably the only lieutenant in the battalion who's the same age as your platoon sergeant. What, what did that do for you as a leader? It definitely, it, it gave me um, some understanding of how the world works. With, with that said though, 
I'll caveat it this way, right? You join the Marine Corps, you're a brand new second lieutenant, you come out of infantry officer course, and you're ready to take on the world, right? And and you think like every you want, once you hit the fleet, once you get your first platoon and your first battalion, like you're just going to be unstoppable. And you get to that first platoon, and it isn't quite what you thought it was going to be. Not every Marine there is motivated and just dying to go to the field every Monday. That's not reality. And that's what I assumed it was going to be. You know, we, we had one, one Marine in particular that I want to talk about today, uh, Lance Corporal Jackson. I'm, I'm changing his name um, just because even though there's going to be some good things, there, there's some bad stuff that goes along with it. And he, he, he in so many ways, epitomizes that early pre-war training that we did. Uh, Lance Corporal Jackson was, you know, he was um, a competent Marine. He's a machine gunner, but he was not highly motivated by any stretch of the imagination, right? Does he have a fresh haircut and a fresh shave every Monday morning? No, he doesn't. Does he want to go to the field and train? No, he doesn't. Does he go out and train? Yes, he does. He listens to his NCOs. He follows orders. He does the drills. He's a machine gunner. He's a competent machine gunner. But in addition to not having the highest motivation level, he's also doing things off duty that are not exactly ideal. He's bouncing checks um, at the PX and not just once, more than once, uh, to the point where we were really considering administrative discharge for him. And my company commander at the time said, Carl, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to train this Marine. We, We don't just get rid of Marines that don't fit our perfect picture. We're going to work with him. Part of our duty as Marine officers is to make better citizens in the society. Yes, we're making warfighters. Absolutely. And is he a perfectly motivated warfighter? No, but he's within what we're going to work with. And and so I listened to my company commander and um, we did not pursue an admin set package, even though Lance Corporal Jackson had enough violations for, for us to do that. And it turned out to be a really great decision. It's late 2002. You're supposed to go in the Mew. You've been training with these Marines for a long time. What happens and how does it shift from I'm going on float? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's it's late December uh, 2002. Um, Our advanced party, you know, like the the senior staff NCOs and um, some of the senior officers like our battalion XO and whatnot had already gone to Okinawa. Uh, to begin the logistical effort to get ready for the battalion to come in, take our birthing, d- do all the things that we're needing to do in terms of weapons, equipment, et cetera, in Okinawa. And we're now 24 hours before our first main body flight, right? So we've basically got 30 personnel forward in Okinawa getting ready for us. Our first main body flight is about to fly out to Okinawa and we get a stop order. It says, do not get on those planes tomorrow. Uh, comes down from division. Okay, we won't get on those planes tomorrow. Um, within two weeks, you know, we weren't sure exactly what this meant right away. It, within a couple of weeks, they had flown our Advon back to us. So we're, you know, we have everyone back in the battalion together at Camp Pendleton. And they say, you guys, you're just going to start training. Um, be ready to go overseas soon. We all know what that meant at that point, right? Um, the UN um, is considering resolutions brought by the US uh, to pursue um, offensive operations against Saddam Hussein. And again, no one has told us you're going to Iraq, but that's what we assume is going to happen. So we trained up through February. And then in February, we flew to Kuwait and went into basically the open desert in Kuwait and continued to train there. You have to remember, we don't at that point don't have the benefit of hindsight. We don't know what's going to happen. We're thinking, we're all looking back to 1991 to Desert Storm. We're thinking, okay, there was a six-month buildup. There's going to be a massive 
coalition of allied forces. It's going to take time to build up, et cetera, et cetera. But at this point, we didn't know what it was going to be. And obviously, it turned into the invasion of Iraq. But we're just training in the desert, sitting in Kuwait, have no idea if an offensive operation will even be authorized at this point. There's still a lot of international political uncertainty. So that's kind of us in Kuwait in February of 2003 now. But how much of that are you seeing as a, as a platoon commander? Or how much of that is, you know, are you getting a brief from the battalion commander, the company commander, or is this just lieutenants hanging around in the water bowl? Yeah, it was. So once we left the United States, once we flowed, flew to Kuwait, information flow came to an almost standstill. We would get briefed, you know, every night the battalion would put out a briefing uh, and it would get briefed, you know, down to the company, down to the platoons, down to the, you know, the individual Marines. That was certainly happening. But the amount of news we were getting through that wasn't a whole lot, right? It was, hey, Security Council, you know, UN Security Council has not passed a resolution. We're still waiting. Uh, we don't, you know, and, and really the focus wasn't even there at the international level. It was, you know, what is the sec def telling us? That was kind of the, you know, we would get a, a maybe a 15 second summary on any given night of what the situation was. Generally, the update was we're still waiting. And, and so there was not a lot of news. We were very uncertain as to what would happen. Would we invade? Would we had not? Would we not? Would it be a limited invasion? Right. A lot of us were thinking if we did invade Iraq, it would be limited, something maybe similar to what happened in 1991. Right. They didn't go and roll over the whole country. They retook Kuwait. They took a little bit of Iraq and then that was it. And so we were thinking maybe this is going to look like that. Super uncertain as to what we would end up doing. How was that impacting your ability to lead? I would say it actually did not really have a highly negative effect. Everyone was in it together. We all understood like, hey, we, we joined the Marine Corps for this. We, we had an incredibly strong esprit de corps within 1-5 at the time. Uh, morale was high. Of course, you know, plenty of little complaints, right? Mail is too slow. We're not getting mail. Those kind of things are real. You know, initially, as we were getting set up in Kuwait, it took a little while for the logistics to come around. So, for example, we were getting generally at least one hot meal a day. Sometimes it would be two hot meals a day as they would get, the, you know, kind of the portable mess halls built there in the desert. Uh, but there were plenty of times where, you know, in the Marine Corps, our tradition is officers eat last, right? So after all the enlisted have gone through, all the, the staff NCOs have gone through, the officers would go through the chow line. And sometimes it was, you know, half a cup of rice and half a sausage, uh, you know, that was the meal. So, but, but really by and large, we were able to train. We're in the open desert, right? So we could do live fire training and things like that. Marines were motivated at that point. So again, there, there was little stuff that was going on. And, and of course, because there's a total news vacuum, kind of funny things happen as well, right? Some of the staff NCOs decided to start a rumor that JLo had died. And that spread like wildfire through the entire division. The, the number of young Marines that are just like, I can't believe J-Lo died. Like, it, so little funny things like that happened. Um, but, right, it, it was just, uh, in, in general, motivation was high. There, there was, you know, of course, people got sick of waiting. But by and large, yeah, morale was pretty high. How's Jackson doing with all of this? Jackson is doing just fine by and large, right? I mean, he's not, he's not the first one in the morning up, you know, and leading PT or anything like that, right? He, you know, he's still just following orders, right? When, when his corporal or his sergeant says, Hey, we're going out to train. We're going to this machine gun range. He's there. He's doing it. He, he is, he is not like born again hard or anything like that as we've gone into Kuwait. He's still just Jackson. 
but he's not bouncing checks because there's no PX. That's true. That's true. All that administrative stuff has faded into the background because there's no opportunity. There is no libo. No one's going on liberty. You know, we're all in this open desert campground. You know, with with no facilities of any kind, so no no PXs, none of that stuff that came in much later. Um, we live lived a Spartan lifestyle, and it kept everybody focused. When did you know you were crossing the border? We we got the the warning order. The official warning order came with less than twenty four hour notice. You know, we were getting. You know, we'd probably been there. I don't know, six weeks, seven weeks, and. It was, it, you know, we, we had kind of gotten into a daily routine. Okay, here's our PT plan. Here's, you know, this many days of the week we're going to get to do live fire training, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the order came down in the middle of one of the night. It was probably zero two in the morning. But I still remember the battalion XO popping his head into our tent and said, we got it, boys, let's go. And uh, we immediately, everyone knew exactly what to do. Everyone was packed every night, ready to go. So everyone grabbed their rucks out of the tent, loaded them up on AAVs. You know, everything was pre-done with um, D-rings and whatnot. So you could immediately clip your packs on the outside of the AAV. We loaded up and we moved out to our assembly area, which was further north, closer up to the Kuwaiti-Iraq border. And then we commenced the invasion less than 24 hours later. The story we're going to focus on today, how long after you've crossed the border does this happen? So this is a good three weeks after we've crossed the border. So we, uh, the initial uh, push for us was into the South Ramallah oil fields. Uh, one of the focuses uh, at the national strategic level was to prevent the environmental damage that had happened in 1991 when Saddam lit oil rigs on fire, etc. We wanted to prevent that um, from happening. So that was our initial focus. But initially, we had no idea what would happen after that. What ended up happening is, of course, by about the three-week mark, we've hit Baghdad. And this is going to happen. This happens in our within the first 24 hours of us actually assaulting into Baghdad. You've experienced combat already. So the, yes. the maybe the shock of it, of those first rounds coming back at you were different. How do you feel as a, as a leader of Marines at this point? Yeah, I, I guess the thing that, that blew me away in the moment was how effective the training had been, right? The, you know, the vast majority of our riflemen are 19, 20, 21 year old Lance corporals. And you by the end of three weeks, even, shoot, by the end of the first day or two of, of actual gunfight, you would have thought every one of these guys was an experienced combat vet with multiple combat tours under their belt. They, all of their training, they just did it exactly the way we had trained to do it. They all, n none of them flinched. They went right into the gunfight. It was, quite honestly, for me, it was the one of the biggest most shocking things was to just see how effective in combat we were as a battalion. You know, when you're going through your initial schools in the military, you keep thinking, okay, well, we haven't been to war in a while. Even those people who went to Desert Storm, that was very few people who actually saw combat. Really, Vietnam is the last time we saw significant combat. Have the lessons of combat been preserved? And I was blown away sitting there as a first lieutenant um, as we're operating in these gunfights in Iraq. And everything's working. And every one of these Marines who has not seen combat at the time, myself included, like everything, all of our training is working and we're just clicking on all, all cylinders. That was, for me, it was awesome to experience, but I was also sort of blown away, blown away by how effective everything turned out to be. Have you had, right, you're in, you're in Baghdad for this. Have you had urban fights prior to this? 
Not at a significant level. We had one minor engagement uh, in a, a town. Most of our stuff had been pretty much in open open territory. We had not had dense urban fighting for sure. You know, we were not part of Basra or any of those early pieces that some of the other parts of the division were part of. So we most of our stuff had been open country gunfights. Uh, you know, palm trees around, and we're you know at the edges of cities, but as it wasn't, ho- we had not done house to house fighting at this point uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So when we get when our battalion gets its first, so at this point the army has already moved into the western part of Baghdad. And you've got the Tigris ribbing through it, right, splitting Baghdad into east and west. And so the Marine Corps has been given eastern Baghdad. Um, east, the Marine Corps has not begun its assault yet. So we're part of the 5th Marine Regiment. RCT-5 is, is what we're known at, at the time. Our regimental commander at the time was Colonel Dunford, of course, who would then go on to become General Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But he decides to roll our battalion up around the perimeter of Baghdad from the north. He wants us to assault in that way. Made sense to me, right? They're not ex- The enemy is not expecting us coming from the north, right? Everything we've done has kind of really come from the south. Um, so we go up and then we're given a task to take down one of the palaces. That That's basically, we want to create an anchor point from there. It's a walled compound. So if we can take that, it becomes a very defensible position. It becomes a position we can fly helo res- resupply in and out of, right? L- lots of reasons for, for us to want to take this. And so we get this mission. We attack through the night. We do, you know, all on uh, night vision systems, do the attack into the, the palace. Our understanding of the intel was the palace is going to be heavily guarded. We don't expect much of a gunfight getting to the palace, but once we get there, expect it to be well defended. The exact opposite turns out to be the case. The gunfight happens entirely along the route through Baghdad, through the city streets at night, extensive gunfight. But once we get to the palace, so we got through that that gunfight. Once we get to the palace, the palace is essentially, well, it's not essentially, is completely empty of people. There's not a single person there, civilian or military. And so we're able to, once again, we go through this mile long gunfight to get there, incredible exchange of gunfire. But we're able to take the palace compound and then that becomes the battalion space of operation from there. Then so the the sun is coming up. We're, we're, we've now attacked through the night. The sun's coming up. It's early morning. And then because, you know, again, we've got a good base of operations, battalion CP quickly establishes in there. And then the frag orders start to come out. My company hadn't even made it inside the actual palace compound. The lead company had gone in, secured it. That was Bravo Company at the time. And they peeled off Alpha Company and Charlie Company onto separate immediate follow-on objectives. Essentially, they were looking for safe houses in Baghdad where Saddam Hussein might be, right? They've got potential, they've got intel reports coming in, don't know where they're coming from, but they're, you know, that's what's getting pushed to us is, hey, go to this grid, there's a house there, search it, look and see if you can find Saddam or any high-level high Ba'ath officials. That's essentially what we're given. So Charlie Company peels off. We've got our 10-digit grid. We go, we're, we're all uh, mechanized in amphibious assault vehicles as we've been th- this entire invasion, right? So we're a mechanized force at this point. 
and we go directly as close as we can to the 10-digit grid. The streets in these neighborhoods in Baghdad, right, the major thoroughfares are just like you would ex expect in any American city, well-paved, good construction, et cetera. But as soon as you get off those major thoroughfares, then you start to get into smaller streets, narrower streets, et cetera. And our AAVs, our amphibious assault vehicles, cannot travel down all these streets. Plus, you don't want to put your AAV in a choke point. You don't want to set them up for an ambush, for a side shot, for an RPG, from any. Those are all real concerns at this point. So once we get close, we dismount the company. Uh, we form a cordon around the, this 10-digit grid um, as best we can. So it's a fairly large cordon. And then we send two of, two of the platoons of the company to go in and basically do a hit on this house. So you've dismounted the track. Do you know who's in this house or is it just, hey, go look for somebody on these playing cards or Saddam? Okay, well, let me address the playing cards real quick. The playing cards never made it to infantry battalions that were doing the assault. Those playing cards got kept by people at whatever level. I don't know. They, I don't know of any guy who was in an infantry battalion in the assault in 2003 that ever saw a deck of the playing cards. So there, there's that. We were the ones who were supposed to get it, right, to use identification, but we never saw it. So yeah, literally, we have no intelligence other than here's a 10-digit grid. We think there's uh, there are high-level bath officials there. No photographs, no nothing. Of course, we all know what Saddam looks like. Go do what you can. And so literally, that's the extent of the frag order. So we just get, get in the vicinity of that location. We set up a cordon around that location. So naturally, machine gunners are really the key to the cordon, right? They're the most effective cordon element we have. They're, of course, su supported by one of our other uh, rifle platoons, right? You, you always want to protect your machine gunners with, with riflemen in case they start taking shots from weird angles that they can't reorient against. And then the other two platoons, we run into basically do house to house clearing to try to get to this house that is at the, uh, is at the 10 digit grid that we have to assume is going to be well defended, right? If it really is a, a safe house for high level bath officials. Without any of this intel, let alone names, your targets that are supposed to be there could be next door. You'd have no idea. We would have absolutely no idea. Exactly right. So as we start clearing these houses, there's most of the people are home, right? Baghdad has, as we attack through the night, there's no electricity in Baghdad, right? The city is totally blacked out, no electricity or anything. So we had no level of what the occupation was in terms of just normal people who lived in Baghdad. As soon as we start this this hit on this house and start clearing houses, it's apparent everyone is home. Everyone has just hunkered down. And so as we're clearing houses, the vast majority of the people we're encountering are innocent civilians, don't have a weapon. They're, you know, I'll often elderly couples with very young children. I would have guessed probably their grandchildren, right? So the military age males, we're not seeing them. You see some wives, you know, that would have been, you know, the wives of military age males, but we're not finding the 25 to 45 year old males. Those are not in the houses that we're, that we're finding. And our Mar I was, again, so impressed with the maturity of our Marines as we begin to go through these houses, because as we begin to do it, then we start taking gunfire from, you know, say multiple streets away, that type of thing, right? And as the Marines were trying to clear these houses so we can get to our target house, they're using themselves, the Marines are putting their bodies between themselves and the enemy gunfire to protect these elderly couple, these young children, to try to get them away from the gunfire, get them into an adjacent house that's going to be further away. It was just awesome to see the maturity, the composure, and the concern. 
you know, that the, that the Marines had. They all understood these are not combatants. They are innocent bystanders to the, to this war. We've got to protect them as 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 much as go and do this attack on the house. And that was really awesome to see. You've said you've attacked. You've spent the entire night before in a lengthy gun battle. You've been given the grid. You've deployed out of the Amtraks. You've started to move towards it. What what is you, where are you in all of this? Yeah, so I'm sort of in the 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 center of our company. I'm I'm basically the, the main guy running the navigation. Like, hey, we got to go this way. Here's the route we're going to take. And as a weapons platoon commander, my Marines are attached out to the rifle uh, platoons across the company. So I'm not with my machine gunners. I'm not with my mortarmen. I'm not with my assaultmen. They've been attached out around the company. So I'm really just kind of driving the train of, of navigation for the company, and. What happens is, so our machine gunners, as I mentioned earlier, are out on the cordon. They're on the perimeter, defend, you know, preventing any additional threats from coming in and attacking us while we try to do the hit on the house. The real, the gunfight, there is no real gunfight in the, in and around the safe house. There are no combatants there. Again, it's elderly people, it's young children, it's innocent civilians. So we don't have much by, you know, again, there's starting to be some gunfire in, but the real gunfight is at the cordon, at the perimeter. And Jackson, as one of those machine gunners, is key to that. What, who we are fighting at this point is no longer uniformed Republican or special Republican guard. This is now Republican guard who have gone to civilian attire or special Republican guard or just high-level bath officials who are now defending their own neighborhoods, right? And they've got AK-47s, they've got RPGs, they've got some medium machine guns, some RPKs and things like that. But it's it's very strange, right? Because now, you know, we had been used to fighting uniformed Iraqi military. And now is the first time we're in gunfights with people wearing civilian clothing. And so in that, they, of course, as we're, we have an established cordon, which makes you vulnerable in the sense that that cordon is relatively fixed. What do these guys do? The, these Bath, you know, Republican Guard officers, whatever they are, that are defending their own neighborhood, they know the neighborhood better than we do. So they start making it to the rooftops of adjacent buildings to start to get nice angled shots down on our cordon. In that process, at, you know, Jackson is down as a machine gunner in the in the cordon, and with this improved angle of fire that the Iraqis are getting, they finally get an angle on him and they shoot him in the butt, right? And at this point, what does Jackson do, right? He could have easily rolled around the, the corner of the building, said, hey, Corman up, like, get me medevaced. He doesn't do that. Instead, all he does is say, motherfuckers, fuck those motherfuckers. And he increases his rate of fire, right? That's what Jackson does in response. And, and ultimately, Jackson was decorated for, for his actions that day, right? I mean, he continued, he was just critical to the defense of the company as we're trying to do this hit on this, this safe house. And again, acts above and beyond uh, what I ever would have thought he would have done. And like for him, like he didn't even think it was a big deal. He's just like, hey, I'm a Marine. Like I've got to protect, you know, my fellow Marines on my left and my right. That was the right thing to do. He never thought it was a big deal or anything like that. And it was just awesome to see that here's a guy who, I had this poor opinion of because he bounced some checks because he wasn't motivated to go to the field, but he was still training with us every day. He was still paying attention. He was still mastering the lessons day in and day out. I, as a you know young lieutenant, couldn't necessarily appreciate that, 
But thankfully, my company commander was there and said, hey, you know what? We're going to continue to train Jackson. And we did. And again, his performance, again, that, that's one small snippet of where Jackson performed so well. But consistently, over the three weeks of that invasion, Jackson was always there, always ready. Gun was already always in action when it needed to be. Like, he was just like all those others that I've already described, you would have thought he was a combat veteran with multiple tours of experience by the way he behaved under fire. He gets shot. Yeah. F those MRFers. <laughs> right? I, I'm sure I could swear on the podcast. Uh, he gets shot. He roll. He Does he shift fire to the rooftop that's getting him? Or? So he, he, he doesn't. He actually continues to engage with who he's engaged with. But then, like I talked about, we had, you know, rifle squads that were augmenting our machine gunners. They then turned, right? Because there's no way he's going to get his medium machine gun that's on a tripod down on the street, right? Trying to engage street level stuff up to that. So he literally just has to trust his buddies and they, uh, you know, they quickly tell him, hey, we got it. They engage and they rake the rooftop. They've got 5.56. They've got both, you know, um, M16s and M249 saws, right? Our, our old light machine gun that we kept at the fire team level, then plus 203s. Uh, the 203 grenade was so effective uh, in the urban environment, right? When you, when you put one of those through a window, you're not going to have another shot coming out of that window anytime soon. And so he trusted those guys that were there to, to keep his security to do their job. And they did, right? It was not just Jackson by himself. You're not going to have shots coming from that window or that rooftop anytime soon. Everything was teamwork oriented, you know, not only here, but just throughout the entire invasion effort. So Jackson gets shot. Is this before you found out that you've got nothing in this grid or is this afterwards? This is all. So I don't find out until afterward, but it's all happening simultaneously. Right. So we eventually hit the house that meets that agrees with the 10 digit grid and there ain't nothing there. There ain't nobody there. That what we had seen as we came into the neighborhood was the Iraqi taxis there for anyone who hasn't seen them. They're all painted white and orange, right? In the United States, prior to Uber and all that, we would think of a yellow as the standard color for taxi. In Iraq, white and orange was the standard color for a taxi. So some of those were zipping very high speed out of the neighborhood, like on the opposite side of the neighborhood. For us, there's nothing we could do with that, right? We literally saw them as a flash and they disappeared, you know. First of all, we had no positive enemy identification, so we couldn't engage to begin with. But even if we could have, there wouldn't have been time to do it. In hindsight, again, what I thought after we had you know, come up empty on this safe house, probably any high-level officials who were in there, they heard us coming from miles away as we rumbled through town in AAVs, got in a taxi or whatever vehicle they had handy, and zipped off out of Baghdad. That would be my guess. So how close we were in terms of timing of actually getting a high-level bath official I don't know. I suspect that they were probably in some of those taxis we saw fly out of the neighborhood as we rolled down. What did that do to your morale? You've had this big gunfight the night before. Yeah. What's going on in your helmet? At, at the moment, there, there's no morale hit on that at all. Everyone is still, I would say, significantly jacked up on adrenaline at this point, right? We've done this big night attack through the city. Very significant gunfight. We've now done this raid, significant gunfight, predominantly again on the cordon, less than, you know, internal to the cordon. And in that fight, other people were, were injured as well. So in that, you know, we had Jackson who had got hit in the butt. We had other people that got fragged. One actually really seriously, our Artie Ford observer, Tavis McNair, 
uh, call sign now Elvis got he, he was basically running communications out of one of our AAV, so we would have comms back to battalion, and one of the rooftop um, one of the rooftop Iraqis got an RPG shot down onto the top of the AAV that he was operating out of. He took frag up through his neck, almost cut his jugular. Thankfully it didn't. So as soon as he got hit and fragged really bad and we came up dry on the safe house all pretty much simultaneously, um, we again, at that point, uh, collapsed the cordon. Um, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we, we had to get Tavis, Medevaced right away. His injuries were very significant, being you know right around the jugular and whatnot. We also had Jackson and others that had been injured, and so at that point we and again the safe house had come up empty, so we collapsed the cordon. We loaded back into AAVs and we got right back to uh, the battalion CP that was now operating out of this palace compound that we took, so we could begin medevac resupply, etc. How did the events of that day? You come back you find out that this Marine that you had been wanting to kick out of the Marine Corps has, you know, now been wounded, has done incredibly well. How did that change your approach to combat? How did that change your approach to leadership? You know, how did, how did the dry hole that you, that you hit impact you? Yeah. The, uh, I'll speak to the, to the safe house coming up empty first. That really I mean, wasn't a morale hit at all. Like we had accomplished so much already. Like we're sitting in Baghdad three weeks ago. We didn't know if we were going to cross LD from Kuwait to Iraq, right? That's the level of uncertainty. So no one is feeling like they haven't accomplished a lot. So there's no more. Everyone's in, in a great mood. Once we're out of the gunfight, we're in the battalion CP, we get some downtime. We can immediately clean weapons, start all of our post-gunfight TTPs, morale is good. Um, we're sitting in one, and you have to remember, like we're one of the first battalions to be sitting in a, one of Saddam's palaces as our new battalion CP. That became passe in the in the later counterinsurgency period and whatnot, right? But this is big stuff at the time, right? So morale across the battalion is high. Again, were we concerned? Uh, we knew that that Jackson would be okay, right? He had a significant injury, certainly needed medical attention, but it was not life threatening. Tavis McNair, we were we didn't know how he was going to turn out, right? So there's certainly concern for there. And across the battalion, uh, there were other medevacs. We actually lost a gunnery sergeant Boer uh, during that night assault into the battalion. So we we did um, lose a marine. He was from Alpha Company, and um, so th- there was certainly a mixture of coming down off the high of a gunfight that had gone well with like, okay, we have buddies who are medevac and we don't know what's happening to them. And ultimately again, Gunny, Gunny Boar was killed. So there was certainly a mixture of emotions going on uh, in the battalion at that point. Jackson gets medevac. Jackson come back. Um, he, he most certainly did. Uh, he came back to the battalion and uh, I can't remember how long he was gone. I think, I think he did. I don't think they let him out of medical until, cause we didn't spend, spend that much time in Baghdad. At that point, we only spent, I can't remember a week, two weeks or something like that. We quickly got, the army basically took over all of Baghdad East and West shortly after the gunfight is over. Uh, and by that, I mean the gunfight writ large across the, the nation of Iraq. Um, and so we got taken back south fairly quickly. And I'm trying to remember where I, we might, it was either in Kuwait or we spent a little time outside Nazaria. We might have got linked up back then. I don't remember exactly when we got linked up. Um, but what I very clearly do remember um, you know, often, you know, at the end of a tour, you write up awards in the military. We all understand that. This was different, of course, right? We're writing up combat awards um, 
And often the awards process takes so long that you write up a Marine for an award, they get PCS to their, to, to their next unit before the award gets approved. Their following command will be the one to give them the award. In this case, General Mattis really prioritized making sure that the awards process ran quickly and smoothly. And so in the case of Jackson, he was at the end of his four-year enlistment. He was getting out of the Marine Corps shortly after we got back to the States. Um, But the awards process moved quickly enough that we were able to pin on both his Purple Heart and his uh, Navy commendation with Combat V um, there at the battalion parade grounds while he was still wearing his, his Marine uniform. And uh, when when we pinned it on him, you know, I slapped him on the shoulder and I said, um, Jackson, I want you to know that when people ask me what happened in Iraq, I tell your story first. So l- listeners, just so you know, Carl and I have known each other for oh, 12 years now or so. And the story of Jackson is one of the first things he told me about his Iraq time when we were comparing stories. So I thought it'd be a great opportunity for him to relate what's going on in the mind of a weapons platoon commander who's not around his Marines in the middle of a gunfight and what those Marines are capable of doing. On that note, Carl, thanks for being here today and we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.